This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. North Korea. What worries me about Kim Jong-un is that the threat perception of North Korea has declined quite a bit since 2017. Dr. Jung Park, until fairly recently, was the CIA's top analyst on all things North Korea. In the absence of really tough talk from Kim Jong-un, big demonstrations of things like nuclear tests and um, intercontinental ballistic missile testing, that kind of lulls us into a view that maybe Kim Jong-un is not dangerous after all. But he and North Korea are dangerous. North Korea has between 20 to 60 nuclear weapons. And she says it's highly likely they can put them on a missile and launch them towards the U.S. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. North Korea warned the U.S. an early Christmas gift was coming. And over the weekend, they unwrapped it, and experts call it a monster. Yes, it is a monster. Ambassador Joe Detrani, former special envoy from the U.S. to the six-party talks with North Korea. Significantly larger than the largest ICBM we've seen in the past. From from North Korea or from anyone? Well, I, I would say from anyone. It's almost 90 feet tall, 10 feet in diameter, and it requires a transport vehicle with 11 axles. 11 axles is the largest we've ever seen. And there are two pieces of bad news that come along with this unveiling. Based on its size. There's no question it could reach the whole of the United States. And it can carry multiple nuclear warheads. And here's what's so concerning for U.S. intelligence. There's no question that North Korea has nuclear weapons. There's no question that they could make those nuclear weapons to ballistic missiles. The question now is how to prevent North Korea from using them. That very clearly will involve diplomacy, the military, and the U.S. intelligence community. And for that, we turn to Dr. Jung Pak who for a number of years was the CIA's top analyst on North Korea. She joins us now to break down the threat from North Korea and the people behind it. You recently wrote a book, and that book is called Becoming Kim Jong-un, How North Korea's Enigmatic Leader Shapes Global Security. And the first thing I would like to ask um, is why did you write that book? Um, You know, I I wrote this book... um, and what, after I left the CIA and, and became a senior fellow at Brookings, um, and when I left the agency, um, 
I saw that, you know, this was, you know, in 2017 at the peak of interest on North Korea, because this was when, you know, President Trump and, and Kim Jong-un were facing down. There was a, a, you know, a real fear of a military conflict in the works um, and that things were going to spiral out of control. And despite the um, very good uh, media coverage and the analysis um, that was coming out, that were coming out of, of this, these events, um, I recognized that there wasn't this holistic view of how we got here to this point, um, who is Kim and what is driving all of this um, and what that means for the U.S. and for regional and global security. Um, and so, you know, what I wanted to do with this book was to provide that that big picture, the context, the historical, um, why this is happening now um, and what uh, what Kim is thinking and what his policy preferences are. There are very few people who have a better idea of what Kim Jong-un is thinking and who he is than you after spending a number of years studying him. And essentially, if I'm not mistaken, the CIA's go-to person on Kim for many years. Uh, what is he thinking right now? Um, you know, as we approach the presidential election, um, the failure of the Hanoi summit in February of 2019, the, the pandemic that is ravaging the globe, um, North Korea has also been hit with some typhoons that has um, displaced uh, thousands of people. Um, given all of those things, um, what it seems to me is that Kim is focusing inward and focusing on domestic issues. Um, rebuilding his credibility, um, licking his wounds after Hanoi, um, trying to show his people and external audiences that he's still tough. You know, he said uh, repeatedly over the past year and a half that, you know, he is uh, maintaining the nuclear deterrence, that, you know, he's not going to face down, you know, he's not going to back off um, in the face of U.S. so-called hostile policy. Um, and, and the regime is doing a lot of things like um, the, you know, the performative aspect of um, anti-COVID um, measures, sending people in hazmat suits to disinfect public areas uh, and, and continuing to insist um, that North Korea has very or has no um, infections of, of coronavirus in the country. As you look at what's taking place, speaking of coronavirus in the country, we'll return to North Korea in a moment. The U.S. is in the midst of its own crisis right now with President Trump's situation. And I'm wondering how North Korea as a nation, given what you know about them and Kim Jong-un as a person and a leader of that nation, is perceiving all of what's coming out of Washington regarding the president's health, the concern from people in the country about U.S. national security. Elections are not um, something that North Korea would be surprised about. Um, this is something, you know, elections happen with uh, regularity in the in the United States. Um, and Kim and his father, you know, also recognizes rec recognize that. Um, but I, I would I would think that Kim sees this moment or has seen the past you know three or four years um, as an opportunity to advance his strategic goals, um, uh, and uh, he has uh, seen the way that the uh, 
relationship with South Korea has eroded uh, amid the Trump administration's calls for a 400 percent increase in host nation support that South Korea provides. That conversation, those negotiations are still ongoing and stalemated. Um, the Kim has also seen uh, South Korea, Japan ties really reach new lows um, following a trade dispute over the past couple of years that has really uh, seeped into the security and economic realms of the relationship. Um, Kim has also seen the deepening of U.S.-China competition and confrontation. Um, and so what Kim sees in all of this and looking at the landscape of the East Asia Pacific region is that alliances are eroding, that the U.S. credibility and, and commitment to the region or the perception of U.S. commitment and credibility in the region is declining. Um, and Kim prefers that. Um, Kim prefers the weakening of U.S. alliances. He prefers uh, U.S.-China competition or a very uh, uh, combative approach between U.S. and China because it helps him. It, it increases le his leverage. Um, it reduces the potential for a united action um, against uh, North Korea and a united approach on North Korea denuclearization issues. Speaking more specifically to the question, do you is he getting all of this out of this situation that's evolving? Because the question to be more specific that I was asking is, what we've seen in the last few days regarding the president's health, going to Walter Reed, all of the questions and chaos about is he sick, how sick is he, is North Korea able to leverage any of that information? I, I'm not I'm skeptical about how North Korea might take advantage of this particular situation um, that uh, it, what uh, what I think Kim the biggest lesson I think Kim would draw from all of this is that this is why Kim has to has the repressive infrastructure that he does so that you don't have this messy media. Um, you don't have um, people dissenting, people questioning the leader in what we have in this very messy democracy that we have in, in the United States. Um, and so I think what Kim sees is that this is why he has this authoritarian structure. This is why uh, North Korea has had this decades long um, uh, way of uh, of approaching governance is that there's only one leader um, and that this strengthens, probably strengthens Kim's view that he needs to uh, continue to consolidate power, to use repression where when necessary to make sure that he's, you know, that he's uh, still in charge. Um, so I'm skeptical about how, uh, you know, some about how North Korea might exploit this particular uh, moment. Um, Kim has his own domestic priorities right now, which is this massive parade celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Korean Workers' Party, which is a very big deal uh, for North Korea and for Kim. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, um, let's return to our subject at hand. Tell us about Kim Jong-un's path to power. When did it start? It's hard to see, right? Because Kim is, uh, you know, when Kim first came onto the scene back in 2009, um, it wasn't clear at that point who he was, what he even looked like until, uh, until you know, the regime showed him um, at a parade and some of the, um, some of the party, big party meetings back in uh, 2010. Um, and this, you know, Kim, he appears on the in the public um, soon after his father suffers a stroke in late 2008. Um, the father 
feeling his mortality um, apparently jump-started and really uh, ramped up the grooming process for his third son, um, Kim Jong-un. Um, and at the time, Kim was only a fresh-faced, very fresh-faced 25, 26-year-old. Um, and so, you know, one of the, you know, Kim Jong-il had, had three sons. Um, and one of the one of the reasons for why Kim Jong-il chose his third son, Kim Jong-un, when Korean culture has it that you normally choose the eldest um, son, um, is that uh, Kim Jong-il thought that his youngest son was more like him, uh, more aggressive, more bold, um, and had a temperament that was consistent with the, with the fathers. Whereas the eldest son, the one that was killed um, at Kuala Lumpur Airport in February of 2017, was considered too westernized or too gluttonous um, uh, not um, not strong enough. Um, he had, of course, been outside of, the, of North Korea for a while, living in exile or self-imposed exile in Macau, um, and that somehow the eldest son was tainted by outside influences. Um, the second son, who was still around, um, is uh, was considered too soft. Um, too weak um, or uh, and potentially not interested um, in being this tough leader that was the, the tough leader that's probably required to run a country like North Korea. So so in part process of elimination, um, but also the positive aspects of Kim's aggressiveness and his demonstrated boldness um, uh, led Kim Jong-il to choose his, his youngest son to be leader of North Korea. All right. And speaking of um, this power and this process that goes into running North Korea and keeping North Korea on pace and on par to be what it is that Kim Jong-il wanted it to be, and Kim Il-sung, I imagine, as well, it is to send a message to the rest of the world. So can you assess the level of threat to the U.S. and the rest of the world that uh, it and they face now from Kim Jong-un? I think what is so um, disturbing about the North Korea problem is that um, we still have, you know, the, the volume of information on North Korea has improved over the years. Um, there's really good satellite imagery. There's really good open source reporting. Um, the reporters and defector organizations and, and other organizations are doing a really good job of uh, reporting things on North Korea. But one of the toughest things um, in intel and in national security is really getting at leadership intentions. I mean, for a country, for a hard target like North Korea, that's, you know, that, that is uh, extremely difficult to get, to get close to the leader, um, to, or much less get inside his head to try to see what he's, his intentions are. Um, so JJ, what worries me about Kim Jong-un, and I think, um, one is that the threat perception of North Korea has declined quite a bit since 2017, that in the absence of really tough talk from Kim Jong-un, um, the, the absence of dem big demonstrations of things like nuclear tests and um, intercontinental ballistic missile testing, that kind of lulls us into a view that maybe Kim Jong-un is not dangerous after all. Um, but when we broaden the aperture, you know, move beyond this particular moment, and I look at 
the uh, evolution and the arc and the trajectory of, of the route that Kim has been taking since he came to, to power in 2011 is that he's taken great pains and great efforts to, to accelerate the nuclear weapons program, diversifying um, and making more reliable uh, the ballistic missiles, those capabilities that uh, make North Korea able to deliver nuclear weapons. Um, to to the to its targets, the fact that Kim has invested selectively into things like special operations forces, the training and the the that Kim has done to improve um, uh, the the North Korean military's ability to attack South Korea, to deliver nuclear weapons to the United States um, or to Japan, South Korea, the chemical weapons attack um, against his brother in 2017, the cyber attacks that the UN panel of experts has uh, has really diligently um reported on. Um, so all of those things um, suggest that North Korea continues to remain a, uh, a, a critical threat to the United States, to our allies, South Korea, Japan, um, and globally. Um, and so while Kim, uh, relatively speaking, seems to be quiet right now, focused on domestic, uh, domestic policies and domestic um, purposes, um, I think we can't lose sight of uh, the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons that it has threatened to use um, and that we are relying on this one man in Pyongyang to um, to to uh, to keep peace and prosperity in this region. So North mm -hmm. Korea will continue to be a source of disruption um, and danger in the East Asia Pacific region and beyond. Let's talk about the nuclear weapons for a moment. Uh, give us a sense of what you believe are the nuclear weapons that North Korea has. How many do they have? What type and uh, in what form are they? Uh, you know, the uh, because North Korea is a hard target, you know, we can have informed estimates. And um, the uh, North Korea has between 20 to 60 nuclear weapons. Um, but what we can see is the uh, the ballistic missiles that North Korea has also been developing. They're uh, they're now road mobile They're um, They are uh, trying to develop a submarine launch capability. Um, they uh, the North Koreans are and trying to are training its forces to launch these missiles from all over the country, which reduces our ability to um, to intercept and to uh, and to try to stop the North Koreans from doing that. So North Korea, the Kim Jong Un has been doing testing from the beach, from a roadside at nighttime and daytime, um, and so which suggests that North, that Kim is trying to not just improve the the hard parts, the technical stuff, but that he's also training his people um, to be ready on notice. Um, and so uh, Kim has, you know, since he came to power, has really uh, promised that he's going to accelerate, amplify um, and expand the nuclear weapons program and his capabilities um, and in to seek a second, a survivable second strike capability against the United States. OK, you said 20 to 60 nuclear weapons and you're not sure, um, certain, I should say. Um, because of the the obtuse in, intelligence uh, environment there, uh, of of what the exact numbers could be, and you know, but this is is, is your estimate. Um, 
One of the key things that everyone has been talking about in in the national security picture when it comes to North Korea is their ability to use those ballistic missiles that you spoke about to deliver those nuclear weapons. Uh, Is it your understanding that they've reached a point where they can actually miniaturize or mate those nuclear weapons to the delivery systems? I think they're pretty um, close to it. Um, I think one of the things that we have to remember that is that uh, we can't, we don't know for sure that these work. Um, but uh, as part, you know, the intel community and um, governments um, have to act like they they'll work um, and to um, and to make sure that we are able to deter that North Korea will ever use these weapons um, and to be able to um, and to be able to counter them or. or um, uh, intercept them um, in the event that, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the worst case scenario happens. Um, what we saw is that um, Kim uh, has conducted three ICBM tests, um, test launches in 2017, but he did them at a lofted trajectory. So we don't know um, if it's able to reach um, the intended target, but Kim was clearly testing um, what uh, the the uh, these weapons? Um, I think without further flight testing, it would be hard to um, say with any sort of certainty about the efficacy or the uh, efficacy of the of these of the weapons that Kim Jong Un has. Um, but I think what we can safely say is that Kim has greatly advanced um, North Korea's ability to reach that uh, reach that goal of having uh, a nuclear weapon that can be delivered on a ballistic missile to the United States. I spoke to you recently, and I think you said that he's conducted four of the six tests that North Korea has conducted since their since the inception of their nuclear program, which indicates, as you mentioned earlier, a very aggressive approach to approving, uh, improving uh, their uh, nuclear program. And those missiles are very important. And several experts I've spoken to have suggested that the Wasong family of missiles um, contains missiles that could reach portions of, if not the whole of the U.S. What's your assessment of that? I think that's right. Um, and it's that uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un has not only conducted four out of North Korea's six nuclear tests, he has conducted four times more ballistic missile tests than his father and grandfather combined um, in his very short um, tenure relatively speaking. Um, and so he's greatly, you know, he pressed the accelerator on, on these developments and, um, it, and North Korea's intentions have been very clear. Um, Kim um, has messaged and uh, reported and the, and, and stated very clearly that, um, that, that he is uh, seeking uh, nuclear weapons capability that uh, the capability to hit the United States. Um, and it's not so much, the fear is not so much that Kim would do something uh, that would be suicidal and that he would actually attempt to hit the U.S. with a nuclear weapon. But it's that what he, it's, but the danger is in what Kim thinks he can do if he, if he knows that he can hit the United States. Um, that is, um, does he think that his leash is longer um, and start trying to create conditions for re, you know, reunification on North Korea's favorable terms? 
Is he going to try to conduct more deadly attacks on South Korea or Japan, for example, um, and and uh, force the U.S. to choose whether they want San Francisco at risk or Seoul at risk? Um, So that uh, and so I think the, the biggest danger is not so much that Kim is going to hit the U.S. with the nuclear weapons, which is almost certainly going to lead to a a regime ending attack by the United States, um, but that what he thinks he can do aggressively and offensively um, to advance his strategic goals. Now, the meta goal of North Korea is unification uh, of the Korean Peninsula um, on, on North Korea's terms. Any idea of timelines? Because one of the things that became very clear during his meetings with President Trump and some of the dialogue that came out of North Korea between then and now, they were talking on several occasions about time, and he seemed to be anxious to get things done quickly. Does he have a timeline for achieving whatever goal it is that he has as far as dealing with the U.S., the nuclear weapons, and this reunification? The, the issue of timelines is really interesting, J.J., because um, I think we have to remember that with North Korea, um, the leaders have thought in terms of dynasties, um, while the U.S., South Korea and Japan think in terms of elections, um, you know, the four year cycle or the five year cycle in South Korea. Um, and uh, and, you know, given in a democracy, of course, you know, we have these very reliable, uh, regularly scheduled elections. Um, but Kim, the Kim family has has, th- has been thinking about this in terms of how to continue to sustain um, the survivability of the dynasty over the decades into, you know, so Kim could be in power for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Um, the, uh, and so I think when we talk about timelines, I think overall, um, this is the way uh, Kim thinks about um, uh, North Korea's um, position in the world. Um, what I thought was really interesting about Kim's um, Kim's uh, behavior um, with the summits with President Trump is that I think he was expecting things to happen very quickly. Um, I think he was expecting things. He had a he had a uh, he overestimated his um, his power. He overestimated his leverage. I think he also overestimated what President Trump might be able to accomplish um, and underestimated the constraints that would lead to this kind of stalemate that we have now. Um, he Kim Jong Un wanted to do things very quickly. You know, he wanted the sanctions uh, lifted um, in return for some unspecified um, uh, giving up some unspecified portions of the Yongbyon nuclear research site. Um, and you know, I think when things didn't happen the way it way he wanted to happen. Almost immediately, Kim turned around and did an about face and pretty much shut the door on negotiations without trying to um, without trying to see where this could go to try to increase some of his his leverage or to to see and explore um, what he might be able to accomplish to advance some of his um, more tactical goals. and what that tells me is that he's still a novice um, at diplomacy. He's he's very good at accelerating the nuclear weapons program, but on diplomacy and the charm offensive, um, he was um, you know he's still he's hampered by the fact that he is surrounded by yes men who are not able to provide any kind of um, any kind of creative thinking about how he might be able to take advantage of the situation. So that haste. Um, 
coupled with the fact that he doesn't have really good people who are able or willing to provide him with honest advice or guidance, um, I think really uh, has contributed to the stalemate that we have on North Korea nuclear talks. You know, we've talked about a lot of things as it relates to North Korea. And, you know, you've talked about the man, the country, the objectives of the regime, the threat from the regime, the the countries, the U.S., South Korea, Japan, and others that are, you know, sort of in the bullseye at this point uh, or trying to uh, figure out how to deal with it. The fact that we should not think uh, North Korea less a threat under Kim Jong-un because things seem to be fairly smooth right now. But there are other tools and other weapons that North Korea deploys, including a cyber program. Can you assess that for us? Um, the cyber program is also very murky, um, but I but what we I'll tell you what are the observables is that Kim Jong Un has made great efforts to invest um, in the science and tech fields. Um, and Kim, let's remember that he's a millennial; he's grown up with tech devices, you know, so he's a digital native, um, and that he's very comfortable with computers. He's com- very comfortable with with media. Um, he's very comfortable with talking to technicians, etc. Um, and so he has tried to elevate that sector um, since he came to power. Um, and so when we see regime pictures, you know, he's, you know, he's got a laptop, he's got cell phone, you know, smartphones, he's in front of big monitors. Um, and, uh, and so that's one observable. The other observable is that um, North Korea has conducted cyber attacks. And this is something that has been reported and investigated by international organizations, um, as well as um, the United States and South Korea. Um, and it's that, uh, and it's estimated according to one South Korean, um, estimate that, that Kim has, uh, six to 7,000 cyber warriors and support staff located all throughout the world. Um, and they are primarily looking to, um, have, uh, to generate, um, Revenue for the regime, you know, bank heists, you know, virtual bank heists, um, trying to tap into ATM networks to to uh, to steal money. Um, and based on you know the reports that we've seen from the UN panel of experts and and other um, entities, uh, Kim is getting better at it, um, and that this is a cheap and low cost and uh, high deny you know uh, cheap and low cost way of of um, trying to circumvent sanctions, um, even as uh, even as the the as the sanctions try to squeeze uh, some of the more traditional avenues for the regime's revenue generation. So, yeah, um, in 2014, we saw uh, the hacking of Sony Entertainment for the movie that Kim Kim Jong Un did not like. Um, And so so we know that Kim has these capabilities and is eager to use them and has been using them. Uh, We've got an NSA here. We've got the NSA, which is very good at defending and protecting the U.S. from uh, organizations, rogue organizations and and nation states that might try uh, this kind of thing. How would you compare what they're doing as a threat to the U.S.'s ability to, to deter it? What uh, I think one of the defenses and one of the things in North Korea's favor is that while it's easy for North Korea to get into our networks, um, or easier for North Korea to get into our networks, um, Kim in the in the past years has created an alternative reality, virtual reality in North Korea, where um, he is. And this is part of the regime's efforts to make sure that information does not get in. So they have this very uh, enclosed intranet within the country and only a very few 
few get access to the internet. Um, and so what, what that means is that North Korea can, can inflict harm on, on, uh, with, with, on countries that have an, an open internet, whereas it's hard to get into North Korea's um, networks because it's so enclosed and tightly uh, enclosed. Um, but you know, this is something that, uh, despite all of that, I think what we've seen in the past few years is really good um, uh, private and governmental efforts to track down, to identify uh, these North Korean malicious actors. Um, and of course, the thing about cyber too, JJ, is that um, attribution um, is, is, uh, is, can, can be difficult. Um, but I think that some of the trends that we've seen over the years is that Kim is getting better. Um, he's bolder, not just on the nuclear weapons capabilities, but on the cyber capabilities. Um, and to the to the extent that the UN has estimated that Kim has stolen, could have possibly stolen uh, up to two billion dollars um, through these cyber heists. The family, his sister, uh, threats to uh, him. He has killed members of his own family, including his uncle, Jong Song Tech, uh, and uh, his brother, Kim Jong Nam. His sister, Kim Yo Jong, appears to be uh, somebody that he favors and likes a lot. She also seems to have a significant amount of power. Could you assess that relationship and what kind of power she has? Uh, Kim Yo-jung, uh, Kim's younger sister, um, is clearly um, relied on by her her brother. Um, she's his de facto chief of staff. You know, she's everywhere with him. Um, and so and so Kim Jong-un clearly trusts his sister. Um, she is they share a mother and a father. Um, and I think that's where that the blood is thicker than water really holds true here. Of course, the uncle that he killed in 2013 was an uncle by marriage. Um, and the and the half brother that he killed was uh, was only a half brother and not the not a full sibling. Um, so Kim Yo Jung has really she's in her early 30s um, and uh, she's really come into her own in the past few years. Of course, Kim Jong Un sent his sister um, to the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018 to start this charm offensive. This was the first time a member of the Kim family had set foot in South Korea. Um, and so it, it was uh, so she so he clearly trusted her to to jumpstart this um, and to show that softer face of North Korea um, in uh, as as Kim embarked on his uh, engagement. Um, Kim, uh, Kim Yo-jung has been it has uh, be, has become more uh, more um, uh, public uh, in the past. I'd say five, six months um, in that she started issuing statements in her own name, which we hadn't seen before. Um, and she was also ordering military actions. Um, and so what I think that Kim Jong-un was doing over the past uh, six, seven months uh, is trying to, to elevate his sister, to delegate some powers to her, delegate some decision-making to her, um, and uh, to to hone her military creds, which is something that she didn't have until this year. Um, if you recall, um, she had ordered the military's destruction of the inter-Korean liaison office that was supposed to be the symbol of North-South cooperation, and the military followed through with that, blowing it up in June, June of 2020. Um, and I think at a minimum, uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un was trying to make sure that she 
started building her credibility with the military and the security apparatuses, um, and also to just elevate her in general as, uh, as somebody that he trusts. Um, but I also think that there is one element of trying to, um, that if anything goes wrong, you know, she, he always has her to kind of deflect attention away um, from that. Um, and so I think that she's somebody to watch mm-hmm. um, as that. I think the trajectory is that she's um, gaining more power um, and more responsibilities. But I would caution your listeners um, and say that she has been very clear that her brother is the one who calls the shots. You know, she, so she hasn't tried to usurp um, or to claim uh, ownership of the leadership role in any way. Um, she has always deferred to her brother and she's been at pains to show that she defers to her brother's decision. Is this about succession at all? I would I would say that it's probably related to succession. I think it's too soon. It would be premature to say that this that this is a succession move. Um, I think Kim, because of his experience, because of the fact that he was so he he was, you know, he was pushed into this uh, into a shortened grooming process himself um, as a result of his father's sudden death in 2011. Um, And knowing death um, as a young man, you know, his mother died when he was 20. His father died when he was 26. um, He knows death um, and he knows some of the the, he knows mortality. He knows um, that in order to sustain the dynasty, there has to be a plan B, plan C, plan D. Um, And I think that um, in in, uh, folding his sister into this kind of his broader thinking about sustainability of the regime. um, I think that's designed to ensure um, that the regime continues. Kim's children. We think he has three children. um, They're still too young um, to take over in any credible way. Um, And so I think that what he sees in his sister is somebody who's um, political, politically savvy, who has experience in the bureaucracy, whom he trusts completely um, to potentially step in if necessary. Dr. Pak, uh, what haven't I asked you today that you think is important that we should discuss? Um, you know, I, as we come up um, to uh, the end of 2020, I what we're celebrating or what we're marking last month and this month um, and in the coming coming days, uh, coming months is that. Um, Kim has been in the in the public eye for at least 10 years now. So he's not this scrappy young dictator, you know, honing, you know, uh, uh, you know, looking to hone his credentials, but that he's now a a veteran leader and he's outlasted other leaders um, in the region. He has outlasted President Obama. He has outlasted South Korea's president, uh, Park Geun-hye, and he's probably going to outlast the current South Korean president. Um, Kim has also outlasted um, Prime Minister Abe um, and is pro- and probably will outlast the, the Prime Minister Suga, the new prime minister in, in Japan. Um, and so, you know, Kim's been doing this at this for 10 years now. And as we move into the second decade of Kim's rule, I think we have to be very watchful and very worried about how a now an experienced veteran North Korean leader with highly advanced uh, military capabilities, what that means for regional dynamics and regional security. What about this individual with all this experience under his belt now who has really poor health? That's always been a wild card and it will continue to be a wild card. Um, 
Kim, as we know, and we have seen um, through the summits, I think that's one of the one of the key things that we learn from actually seeing Kim in real time without the soft filters of regime media is that, you know, we can see that he's he's not well, that he's he's uh, overweight. Um, when he was walking that short distance during the summits, uh, we could see him sweating profusely and wheezing. We can see him taking smoke breaks, which, you know, the, he's a he's a um, you know, he's a smoker, he's a heavy smoker. Um, and that as the, as the years go by, he's, and as he ages, you know, he's become an older, um, obese, um, heavy smoker. Um, and given the, the family history of heart disease, diabetes, and other uh, related issues, um, you know, Kim has to be, high, you know, aware of some of the things that are, you know, that's not in his favor in terms of health. And I think regardless of whether Kim dies um, or Kim's health fall, fails, you know, next week or 10, 20 years from now, um, the, secu- the national security job um, is to prepare, um, is to plan. Um, and this is something that I think uh, that we need to be mindful of is that um, Kim uh, might be around for 30 years or he might be around for uh, 10 years uh, or 10 weeks um, for that matter. Um, and so that, uh, that we have to be prepared for North Korea contingencies, that we have to be lashed up with uh, China, South Korea, Japan, Russia, um, to make sure that we are prepared in the event that uh, anything happens in North Korea. That's Dr. Jung Pak. She's a former CIA analyst on North Korea, and she's now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And you can bet we'll continue this conversation on North Korea as time passes. In the meantime, coming up in our next episode. It was a challenging time. I mean, I I write about this in Battlegrounds. I I write about the toxic environment there. The interview we've been waiting for several years for. H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump. And in a wide-ranging interview, he pulls no punches. I'll tell you, JJ, I've been like I've been shot at for real, you know. <laughs> so I was, I was, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty stoic about it. I was like, okay, bring it on, you know. Let me just do the best job I can for the elected president. H.R. McMaster's book is called Battlegrounds: The Fight to Defend the Free World. We talk about that in depth. Also, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, working at the White House, his career in the military his work at the White House, and his career since then. All coming up in our next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about our program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, follow us on Twitter, please. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. Also, if you want more information about national security, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. It drops on Thursdays, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Yeah! <laughs> you knew this was coming. Guess who? Oh, 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 o
Let me start this thing off. Join me every week for the Michael Irvin Podcast. We'll give you the full MIP experience. I'm talking everything from football to fashion. I will be chopping it up with playmakers, headline makers, and I am throwing haymakers. I'm the MVP of the MIP. Don't miss it. Download new episodes of the MIP, the Michael Irvin Podcast, every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.